You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Amen. You can take your seats and turn to Revelation 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can find Revelation 9 on page 1033 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you. This past week, I was with my family as it was our last spring break with Meg, who is a senior, and I did some work from home, and I was writing my sermon from home, and Macy, our youngest, happened to be in the kitchen, and I said, sweetie, do you want to know what dad's preaching? And like an obedient daughter, she said yes. I said, I'm preaching about an angel who has a key to a shaft that has smoke in it. And out of that smoke comes locusts with scorpion tails and horses with lion's heads and lion's teeth and breastplates of iron. And she said, good luck with that. (laughs) We arrive at a chapter that really dives into the deep end of Revelation. And we see in the descriptions and we see in our efforts to understand what the word of God says, why so many people avoid it, why so many people are intrigued so much by it that it becomes almost an obsession. But I want to challenge us this morning to recognize that God's word is not simply knowledge and facts. It is intended to move us, as it were, to a response. And so this message and this chapter about locusts and scorpions and lion's heads is really for us today. There's three categories of people that I want to speak to before we start to study God's word. The first category is the men. Men, I'm asking you, eyes up here. One of the results of the fall was that men would give up their leadership. Men would take their leadership and begin to apply it in a way that the world says we should apply it and in essence emasculate what biblical manhood is. We live in a society where that temptation is fueled, whether it be the hobbies that are offered to us, whether it be the entertainment that is offered to us, whether it be this idea that as men we should never grow up. And I think in the church that temptation is still there because so often in the church as you compare the men with the women, the women often have more knowledge of God's word and a deeper passion for spiritual things. And men, you may be sitting here and saying, yes, that describes me and my wife, or it describes me and the group that I hang out with. The the ladies are much more spiritually mature. And, And you might be tempted to think that it is impossible for you to ever get there. The idea of starting where you actually are and building to a spiritual maturity might seem overwhelming. But listen, men, we put the ball on the tee here every Sunday. Every Sunday we open God's word and we march through it verse by verse so that not only do you get understanding of the text, but you actually get modeled to you how to study God's word. And I look out as a preacher and see so many of you men who don't take notes. I see so many of you men who don't open God's word. 
And men, it's time for us to be biblical men. And I submit to you that if you will each week, if at a minimum each week, you will open this book, you will follow along, you will write things down on your notes and even take the references that I give you and use those as your study guides throughout the week that as the week turns into months, as the months turn into years, you will grow in your spiritual maturity. It's time for you to begin acting like men. Women, I want to talk to you. Yes, the stereotype is that you women are more spiritual in your maturity than men. I I know that there are wives who are in marriage relationships where you long for your husbands to step up. You long for your husbands to be men of the word, and you are right in wishing that they would be. But listen, when your husband, when your friend, the men in your friend groups show one sign of stepping toward that, so many of you focus on the nine steps that they should also be taking. And before you know it, you are so critical of your husband or of men in your groups, you don't even realize that you are undercutting them and undercutting them, and it needs to stop. If your husband constantly feels like he can never live up to your expectations, if your husband feels like you will never be satisfied, you will never encourage them, it's time for you to actually look in the mirror of the Bible you say you're studying and actually apply it. And then students, I want to talk to you. We live in a day where it's excusable that you live a life of immaturity. We live in a society where you are encouraged on social media or through sitcoms or through entertainment to value at a highest level popularity, the laughing of popular people in your classrooms, the dating of the popular people or having a relationship. And before you know it, that is becoming your identity. And you're thinking to yourself that someday when I get older, I'll pay attention to all of this stuff. But what you don't realize is you're setting yourself on a trajectory of a downward spiral that will be very, very difficult, not only to climb out of, but we'll have ramifications that you will be plagued by for the rest of your life. It's time to stop and to start investing in the truth of God's word. We live in a deceitful society. We live in a system that is deceitful. It is very difficult to recognize that. And I think that's what these two trumpets are going to reveal to us. Look at the big idea in your notes. John provides gospel clarity. And when the gospel provides spiritual lenses, the reality of deception comes into clear view. Keep that as your focus as I read this chapter and you begin to hear about some pretty grotesque descriptions. Revelation 9, beginning in verse 1, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then 
From the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power, like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass or, uh, of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Let me stop right there. I want to speak to that group of people that are engaging with these sermons and this series who subscribe to a model that my preaching doesn't necessarily agree with. And you might even hear me read this text and see something like this seal on foreheads and immediately think that it is a tattoo or that it is a microchip. And you might even read this about locusts and scorpions and think this is literal. And when I say that it's not, you may immediately just switch off or you may immediately become critical. But listen, beloved, as I have been saying from the beginning, the details are important, but they're not the end game. And if you're so focused on what the mark of God on somebody's forehead is that you miss the main point of the text, <sighs> beloved, you may be deceived. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as their king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in the vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates of the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. The power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor... Did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts? Very interesting chapter, isn't it? 
But I think very clearly, right at the beginning, John shows the original audience, and by extension us today, that he is focused on exposing deceit. Four areas of deceit that are exposed by these two trumpets, beginning in verses 1 and 2, we see the shaft deceives. The shaft deceives. Now, before we dive into verse 1, let's get our bearings of where we've been. Remember, when we study God's word and we interpret it, we don't just focus at the verses at hand. If we do that, we most likely miss what the text is teaching. And so, we don't just look at chapter 9 in isolation. So back in chapters 4 and 5, John has revealed the throne room by his symbolic descriptions. The throne room that at the center has Almighty God, the God who is unparalleled. No one is like him in authority, in splendor, and in sovereignty. And around God himself are divine beings who are worshiping him and who are representing all creation and representing believers. And there's a book that has six seals and actually seven seals. And and they are looking for somebody who is worthy to be able to break the seals and to open the book and to, by reading it, administrate all of the details that are found in it authoritatively. And up steps one from the middle of that group who is described as a lamb who was slain and yet is standing In chapter 6, we see six of the seals that are broken and open, and we see by the judgments of God patterns that have been playing out since Genesis 3 all the way to Christ's second coming. Judgments on creation, judgments on humanity. And we see that those judgments escalate. They increase in severity. And then chapter 7 reveals that even though the judgments are poured out on creation and on humanity, and even though the judgments increase in intensity, God's people will be protected. Because God seals them and washes them. And then we get to chapter 8, and we see that the seventh seal is broken and opened, and then seven trumpets are handed to seven angels. And last week, we saw the first four trumpets target judgment on creation and on nature. And now, as we arrive at chapter 9, we see that the trumpets that are unpacked will target wicked humanity. There are three woes. The first of the three woes are unpacked in the first four trumpets, but then we arrive at the fifth trumpet in chapter 9, verse 1. Look at what it says. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. If you were here last week, you should remember that there was another star that fell to the earth. And I submitted to you last week that I don't think that is a, an actual star from the sky. It's a symbolic description teaching us something else. And I think the same thing is true here in verse 1. The star is not a celestial body. It is actually a symbol that is teaching something. And in order for us to understand what that is, remember, we study the Bible first starting with them then, then looking at the rest of Scripture, then getting to Jesus. And then once we get there, now we can drop down to the us now. 
And so when we do that, we see that the Bible references stars in a symbolic way. You can write down these verses, Isaiah 14 and verse 12, but then also listen to this, Luke 10 and verse 18. Jesus telling his disciples in Luke 10 and verse 18 that he saw Satan falling from heaven like a star. The disciples were the ones Jesus was speaking to there in Luke 10, including the Apostle John, who is writing this description. He says that there's this being who falls from heaven to the earth that was given a key, the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. This idea of bottomless pit is found throughout Scripture. Luke 8.31 is a reference that uses this description. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4 is another reference that uses this description. The key, look at this, was given to this angel. Now, I think this is Satan. Other commentators believe that this might be a high-ranking officer in Satan's army. I think this is Satan. And it looks like he's given authority over this bottomless pit But who ultimately has the authority? You can write down Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. Verse 18 where Jesus says, I have the keys to death and Hades. And then you can also see that the actual grammar here says that the, the angel was given the key. And so the authority doesn't lie in this angel or this star. The authority lies in the one who hands out the king, the key. It's interesting, we would expect just by logic that the key would be used to lock the shaft of the bottomless pit, but look at verse two, it says the angel opened the shaft. He opened the shaft to expose its contents and the contents of the shaft of the bottomless pit are described here, look at what it says, by smoke, And look at what the smoke does. This is where I get this idea of deceit that is going to flow through chapter 9. It says that the smoke darkened the sun and the air. Do you see it in the text? Think about what that description conveys. Both the sun and air are necessary for a healthy life, aren't they? And yet the smoke from the shaft of the bottomless pit darkens the sun so that you can't see and pollutes the air so that you can't breathe. It reminds me of a study that I'm conducting on Civil War history. That's one of my favorite areas of history. I'm reading the book Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. It is a fascinating account of the details of those three days. I remember on day two, there was a significant amount of fighting in an area called Devil's Den. It's an area of large stones and boulders. And the fighting was so fierce in Devil's Den that the smoke from the rifles and the artillery was was so thick that the soldiers couldn't tell who was on whose side. And there's accounts by the soldiers themselves of how they were listening and heard voices and and thought that they were the same side and they would let them come right in the midst of their fellow soldiers and realize too late that it was the enemy and then they would capture them or kill them. 
smoke clouds judgment. I think that's what John is revealing, is that what comes from the shaft is smoke. What comes from the shaft is deceit. What comes from the shaft is darkness. You can write down Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. The evil one is constantly associated with darkness. Our life before Christ is constantly associated with darkness. John is revealing that the shaft deceives, and it's all around us, beloved, and it is so subtle. Do you know that the enemy rarely exposes itself for the darkness that it gives? Do you find yourself reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament and the accounts of characters and thinking to yourself, why were they so deceived? I was reading this morning the account of Saul. Saul is an incredible study of a a man who physically was given everything from God. He was the one that people describe as being touched by God with his stature, with his looks, with his abilities. And he was chosen by the people to be king. And he was given a man like Samuel. He was given direct instruction from the God of the universe. And yet he fails over and over and over again. The passage I read this morning Samuel said that the kingdom has been taken away from you, Saul, and the temptation is often to think, I wouldn't do that. And yet we do every day, don't we? Because the fact is, is that the smoke from the shaft deceives. Why couldn't they see it? Why don't we see it? Well, it's because it's effective. The shaft deceives, can you see it? But then number two, the system deceives. The system deceives. We arrive at verse three and now we begin to see these creatures that are described by John, locusts, scorpions, horses, And again, if all we're doing is looking at this text, we might be tempted to conclude that these are actual creatures, that these are literal descriptions. But again, when you start with the them then, you look at the rest of Scripture, you get to Christ, and then you get to our understanding in the us now, I think that we would reveal that these are symbolic. Locusts are often described as the tools of divine judgment. You can write down Exodus chapter 10 and verse 4 where locusts are one of the 10 plagues of Egypt. Maybe your mind goes to Joel 1 through 2 where locusts are described there as tools of divine judgment. And so we're immediately drawn to this description by looking at the rest of scripture to understand it symbolically. But then he uses the imagery of scorpion's tails and it causes us to look at the rest of scripture. Is there anywhere else in scripture where scorpions are referred to to help us better understand this? And you can write down Luke chapter 10, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus sends out his disciples in pairs and he says, I will give you the power to trample on scorpions. And I think if you look at the rest of that scripture, you see that Jesus is not referring to those little critters that sure sting. He's referring to agents of Satan. He's referring to the world system. 
Is that the temptation of the world system, the temptation to torment, the, the stings of the world system are something that the followers of Christ can overcome. Notice also that these tormentors are not able to harm or derail, you could write out to the side, those who have been sealed, who have the mark of God on their forehead. I would submit to you, friends, I don't believe this is a literal mark on any part of the body. When we look at the rest of Scripture, and when you see how John is using imagery throughout Revelation, I think you can conclude with a strong amount of confidence that what he's saying is these are those who are owned by God. These are those who demonstrate through their life and the patterns of their life and faithfulness that they are owned by God, that they are servants and slaves of God and not of this world. And when they are part of God's family, they cannot be derailed by the torment of the world system. Oh, but those who are not Christ's certainly can be. Friends, I think one of the greatest tools to equip us to see this and to know how to process this is the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, I think God knows that life is hard. I think Satan knows that life is hard. The older I get, the more real that statement is. As physical begins to deteriorate, as memory begins to deteriorate, as the world that you thought plays itself out like Disney princess fairy tales, doesn't. As you begin to see death around you, as you begin to see employers who don't think you're the greatest gift since sliced bread, before you know it, you begin to amass this real understanding that life is hard. And there are two offerings, one from God, one from Satan. The one from Satan sure glitters, doesn't it? And what he offers us is what Solomon pursued, and that is the glitter of this world, the glitter of the world system, things like academics, things like physical intimacy with the opposite sex, things like possessions, things like career pursuits, things like religion, things like addiction, all the while offering for us to control this hard life, all the while offering for us to deny this life that is hard, to run away from it, to overcome it on our own. And what Solomon says is he tried every category that is offered by Satan, every category that the world system offers, and his conclusion was that it is smoke. Isn't that interesting? That's the Hebrew term translated vanity, habel, smoke. It's there. It's real. You can touch it. You can smell it. You can taste it, but it does not last. And see, by our own nature, we pursue the deceit of the system because it appeals to our lusts of our flesh, the lusts of our eyes, the pride of life. And John says here, listen, it is offered and it does torment But notice a couple things about the text. First of all, he reveals that it is torment. You know what the torment of this world system is? 
It's the torment of the spiral. I'm going to have the team put a picture up on the screen. This is the spiral, the downward spiral and the upward spiral that we're referring to here. You see, the one on the left is an opportunity for you to experience the hardness of life. The pain of life, the anxiety of life, the overwhelming season of life, and to respond to it. If you go after the world system thinking somehow that education will stop the spiral, that possessions will stop the spiral, that a career will stop the spiral, that that new car will stop the spiral, that that new neighborhood, that that relationship status, that the new video game, whatever you think will stop the spiral of life being hard and somehow deliver satisfaction will only lead to more ruts. I had friends when I played baseball who would take this spiral and playing every night was difficult Being reminded on the scoreboard how much you failed as a baseball player was difficult. Having journalists who had never played a day of competitive sports in their life come up to you after you lost the game for your team and say, how do you feel, was difficult. And some teammates would choose things like tobacco because they could get a little buzz and that, that wouldn't satisfy. And so others would pursue alcohol and after a bad game would go out and get wasted but they found very quickly that didn't satisfy and the spiral just kept going and going and going. And listen, some of you have that in your past. Some of you are on the spiral right now. But that's where the other spiral is so important is that when we experience life being hard, choosing the world system will not get us out of that rut. Choosing gospel-centered tools will. And it doesn't glitter like the gold of this world. But it does satisfy. It's not the easy button like all of the things that Solomon pursued. But it does lead to change. And I think what John is doing by the descriptions that he provides here are opportunities for us to be able to see the deceit of the world system. So what is the solution? Well, verse 4 gives us the solution, and that is that he can seal us, God can seal us. That if we are sealed by God, then we have the tools that we need so that no matter what we experience in this life, we can actually stop the spiral and come back up to a place of worship. You can write down 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. The Apostle Paul speaks of this principle and says there is no trial or temptation but is common to man. Listen, beloved, one of the greatest lies you can tell yourself is what you're experiencing is unique. What the, one of the greatest lies you can tell yourself is that the, the situation that you're presented, you alone are experiencing. And then before you know it, we can become islands and isolate ourselves and call ourselves victims. But beloved, listen, the Bible says our experiences are common. And you may say, well, pastor, there's details that you don't know. Yes, but the category of what you are experiencing is common to man from Genesis 3 to the second coming of Christ. It is common. And God provides a way for you to stop the spiral and come back up to worship. And the solution is the gospel. God is faithful. 
He will not give you a situation that you cannot endure. He will end that trial, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how painful the memories are, no matter how painful the experience is, no matter how anxious the future is for you, he gives you what you need through the gospel to endure in a way that leads to worship. Oh, but we want the easy button, don't we? We want the world system. We hear Solomon say over and over and over again, it's a bell, it's smoke, it does not last, but we think maybe this one will. It is so deceiving. And I think John is using vivid imagery to describe and reveal the deceit of the world system. Which leads to number three. The serpent deceives The serpent deceives. Verse 7 is more descriptions of the same thing. I forgot to mention in verse 6, although I hope you can get it. It says, in those days people will seek death and they will not find it. I don't think this is describing people who are trying to commit suicide and they are unsuccessful. I think what John is describing here is that people will get to a place where the torment of this life, and it is a torment in life when we pursue the smoke of the system. People will get to a place in their life where they somehow think death is the solution. That death will somehow deliver the substance and the satisfaction they've been trying to pursue and all of these other pursuits. And what John is revealing is even if they are successful with suicide or even if they're not, death will not satisfy. And then he uses more descriptions that are grotesque. But I want you to notice something. Look at verse 7. The descriptions are intended to tie the reader back to the throne room. It says in verse 7, there was an appearance of locusts like horses prepared for battle. But look at this. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. There were crowns of gold with the 24 elders in Revelation 4. Their faces were like human faces. One of the four living creatures had a face of a human. There's a, another description later on in the text that describes the lion's face and the lion's teeth. And I think what John is doing by using the descriptions that he's using is contrasting the followers of God and the creatures of God with the followers of Satan and the creatures of Satan. Listen to what Jim Hamilton says. Whereas the living creatures at God's throne reflect the character of God, these scorpion-like creatures reflect the character of Satan. What's amazing is when you look at the descriptions in Revelation 4 and 5, and you actually think about what John is describing, there's a beauty there. But when you look at the descriptions of these beings, it is actually grotesque. And he's trying to contrast the difference between the character of God and the character of Satan. Look at that, verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. I believe that's Satan. And the two terms that are provided here in Hebrew and in Greek are translated destroyer. Listen to what Jim Hamilton says again. The best Satan can do is twist something God created good. Isn't that true? 
The best Satan can do is twist something God created good. Everything that tempts us is a twisting, it's a perversion of satanic corruption of something God meant for us to enjoy. But listen to this, his way and at his time. And listen, friends, if you could just get this, take a picture of this, write this down. If this is the one thing you take away from this sermon, you'll get it. If this is the one thing you take away from this sermon, it will provide lenses for you for all temptations in your life to see it for what it is. The best Satan can do is twist the good of God. And that if we will only enjoy the things that God has given to us in his way and at his time, we will experience the satisfaction he designed us to enjoy. But the serpent deceives. And so John uses vivid imagery of grotesque yet powerful beings to draw our attention to his deceit. In fact, would you turn back to Genesis 3? From the very beginning, he deceives. And listen, beloved, Satan's deception is not easy to identify. Genesis 3 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, listen to this, did God actually say? Listen, friends, if you have people in your life that begin a conversation with, did God actually say, warning flags should come up. When you go out to social media, people start lobbing scriptural references Beware. Did God actually say, and then he quotes, God, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden, but he twists it, doesn't he? You can look back at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, or you can write it down and look at it later, but the actual command of God is you may eat from all the trees of the garden except one. Satan twists scripture. And it doesn't stop there, does it? Matthew chapter 4. When Satan was tempting Jesus himself, he uses scripture. Friends, Satan disguises himself. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll have the team put it up on the screen. Verses 14 and 15 says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But it's not just him. Verse 15 says, So it is no surprise of his servants also. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. It is tough to tell. And maybe you've been coming to Ascend for a while. Maybe this is your first time at Ascend. And you might be thinking, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I'm sitting here for 45 minutes listening to somebody talk from the Bible. We have a a reputation in the community as being an intense Bible church. The kids right now are getting taught from the gospel project, studying the word of God. The young adults 
that are 20-something are going through the book of Acts and then a group of the men in that group are getting trained in hermeneutics, how to study and interpret God's word. The students come here on a Sunday night. Other teenagers might think, oh, there's plenty else to do. They come here on a Sunday night and get taught the word of God. Small groups require you to study the word of God on your own and then come and discuss it. The women's ministry comes on Wednesday mornings to learn what does the word of God say about parenting? How how do I study the word of God? There's a group called Simeon Trust that are women who devote themselves to learning how to interpret scripture and then to teach it in front of leaders in this church. And you might be thinking, that's intense. We have men's groups that gather together for dinners that talk from the word of God. A Bible study for men that starts at 6.15 in the morning on Fridays. What is wrong with us? We have soul care where people come with the problems of their life, with the challenges of their life, and we give them homework from the Bible. But the reason for that is, beloved, because the serpent is deceitful. And it is very difficult for us to be able to see that unless we are looking through the lenses of an accurate understanding of God's word. Which brings us to number four. The sermon deceives. <laughs> you might think, uh, wait, what? <laughs> Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Three times in these verses, the term mouth occurs. And then in conjunction with fire and looking at the rest of scripture, we see that mouth and fire describe prophecy or the teaching of divine revelation. So there is a sermon that Satan preaches, and that is revealed in the sixth trumpet. Let me say in verse 12, just by way of modeling biblical interpretation. It says in verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, in the English, it looks like this is sequence, doesn't it? It looks like the the first woe is the events of the fifth trumpet, and then the second and third woe will be the sixth and seventh trumpets. But if we look at how John uses descriptions, if we look at the vocabulary of Revelation, I I think it's better to understand that these are not sequences, these are not events that have passed. Instead, it simply means that the vision containing the first woe is done. Now it's time for the vision of the second woe. And I do believe that as you look at the events that are described and the descriptions that are described, they overlap in our patterns that have occurred throughout history. So verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. By the way, when the Bible refers to horns, it typically is referring to authority. And yes, the four corners of the altar did have horns on them, but I think what John is doing is he's drawing from the imagery that he's already been teaching and showing us to show that it is God with ultimate authority who gives the command. And what is the command? He says, release the four angels. Now, I have to admit, it's it's difficult to know who these four angels are. But I would submit to you that if you go back to chapter 7, we saw four angels, didn't we? There's a four angels standing at the four corners of the, world, of the earth with 
a requirement to be restrained from releasing the winds of harm on creation. And I think what John is saying here is that those four angels are now going to be released to do what they were supposed to do. And I think you can further see that by the description that they are bound or they, are kept, they were kept from doing what they were supposed to do at the great river Euphrates. Now what's interesting is when we look at the entire Bible, we see that Euphrates played not only a geographical role, but also a spiritual role all throughout Scripture. And the Euphrates is the near location to the garden. It's also the location of the capital city of Babylon, But by the time you get to the New Testament, it is less about geography and more about spiritual. And I think what John is saying here is that these four angels are the agents of Satan that are acting under the authority of God. And so they're released when? The hour, the day, the month, and the year that God intended. Isn't that awesome? You can write down Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of time. Beloved, listen, everything in our life, everything in history, everything in the future will only happen at God's perfect timing. You see how this information should stir within us and would have stirred within the, the hearts of the seven churches to whom this book was written to conquer and endure with confidence. They were released, verse 14, by the voice, verse 13, from the four horns of the altar. What is described as a a massive army, and there's a lot of fun uh, and, and wasted time, perhaps, that I had reading what scholars think the actual number is. Is it 200,000? Is it 200 million? I don't think that's the point. Remember, John uses numbers symbolically. He's just describing a massive army that is at the behest of Satan. And where is their power? And where is the plague? Look at verse 17, the mouth. Verse 18, the mouth. Verse 19, the mouth. Verse 18, the fire. And I think when you look at the combination of these and you look at the rest of Revelation and you look at the rest of Scripture, I think what John is exposing is that the message of Satan is deceitful. Let me invite you to turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, his dear son in the faith, Timothy. These are the last recorded words of Paul, specifically to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Here's the motivation. He's going to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, which sounds a lot like what is being described in Revelation. And that motivation is intended him to stir and apply, verse 2, to preach the word. To be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 
Friends, the message of Satan is deceitful. And we see that playing out in our day at an extreme level in Catholicism. Friends, the Pope is a pastor from the pit of hell. And the message that he is decreeing is the sermon of Satan. And while they call themselves Christians and while they call themselves a Christian denomination, nothing can be further from the truth. But beloved, it's not so obvious. It's less obvious, but still pretty obvious in our country with mainline denominations. Now, when I make these statements, please know that I'm not saying that every church in these denominations fit into this indictment, but the United Methodist Church is in this category. As a whole, the United Methodist Church here in America is espousing false doctrine. And the Church of the Resurrection here in Kansas City is a church where a person that preaches to itching ears is their pastor. And I say that not to set ourselves up piously or to say that we are better, but simply to expose error with the hope and the prayer is that he will be convicted and he will come back to what the word of God says and not teach what itches and scratches itching ears, what sounds good to politicians, what advances the size of their church and their social causes at the expense of the gospel. And it's not just extremes like cults, like Catholicism, or with liberal mainline denominations. It's also subtly infiltrating evangelical churches, especially lately with the topic of wokeness. And before you know it, there are preachers and leaders of churches in our country and in our community that are teaching more philosophy and rhetoric than they are the Word of God. Listen, the word of God speaks to all of the topics of wokeness. And some of what the Bible says should cause us to look at our past and make changes today so that we head toward a more gospel-centric future. Amen and amen. But that's not coming out of rhetoric or social media or some book that has been written about critical race theory. It's coming from the Bible. And then sadly... There are other churches that are focused more on what they can do in the community than equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, I don't say all of this, again, to say we're perfect. We have so much we need to grow in, and I pray that every year that I'm a pastor here and the elders are leading the way that they are, that we will be able to see measurable growth. But may it be so that the sermon that we espouse, that the equipping that we hold to, is rooted deeply in an understanding of Scripture that was modeled by Jesus and the authors of Scriptures, not systems, not models, not denomination. Because look at what happens if it's not. The message of Satan kills, verse 18, to kill a third of mankind. Now, please don't get lost if you disagree with me on this, but I don't think this is a literal description of death. I don't think this is a 33.333% of the population that existed at this time. Following how John uses words and terms. 
I think what this is describing is that there are some who will literally die. There are some who will just get so wrapped up in their torment that they are acting as though they are dead. But I think the goal of all of this is grace. Look at this, beloved. Verse 20, to the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent. The goal is repentance. When the word of God is preached, it should convict. It should rattle us. I had people come up to me after the service, in first service, and say, listen, that was tough, but I needed that. That's what the word of God does. The glorious privilege And the most difficult exercise that I have to do every week is preaching this to myself before I preach it to you. The word of God is intended to stir us, to shake us, to cause us to repent. And as these trumpets continue to be blown upon the earth and escalate in their intensity, it will have that effect on God's elect, but the opposite effect on the wicked. We bow your heads and close your eyes. These two trumpets are difficult to process. The symbolism, the imagery, wow, it's not something that we're used to. And by the time you get to Revelation, after having had all of these books of the New Testament, that's why this seems so difficult. But when you look at how John has been teaching, when you look at how prophetic literature all throughout Scripture is intended to be studied and understood, I think you can get to a place where we can at least see the main point of this text. And that is that the shaft deceives, the system deceives. The serpent deceives and his sermon deceives. My question to you is, can you see it? And friend, maybe you've never gotten to a place where you have surrendered to the King of kings and Lord of lords. He accepts nothing less. You can't be 50-50. He expects you to be all in. He expects you to pick up his cross and follow him. Friend, have you done that by acknowledging that you're a sinner, admitting you cannot save yourself and believing that Christ did the work for you and that by trusting in his completed work, you can confess and say the same thing about yourself that the Bible says and turn from your sins. You will be saved. There'll be people to the sides of the stage that would love to be able to pray with you, that would love to be able to lead you in salvation, love to be able to help you if you've committed your life to Christ, to be able to point you to tools that will help you grow. And then Christian friend, where are you with the deceit of this world? Is the clarity of the gospel the light that comes from his word shining brightly in your life so that you can see reality for what it is. Oh, friend, how has the Holy Spirit used this in your life? Will you respond? Father, thank you for this difficult chapter. What imagery. And the imagery is important. It's intended to teach. And I pray that in my efforts to explain the imagery that the main point has not been lost. And that is that the serpent deceives, but you make clear. I pray that we would not pursue the easy button. I pray that we would not be distracted from the smoke of the shaft. 
pray that we would recalibrate this morning. And even as we go into a time of reflection, use this as your Holy Spirit promises to cause your word to return to you, having accomplished its intended purpose. To the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen.